Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 20th, and this is the weekly market update. So down here in deep Texas, uh, we survived the Arctic blast, if you will, the Ar Alberta clipper, the, the polar vortex. Um, power outages were all over the place. Fortunately, I didn't lose power at my place. We did lose water for a while as the city water plant uh, was forced to run on a generator. But uh, lots of issues down here with uh, many people losing service and temperatures earlier in the week getting down into the teens, which is uh, has happened before, but uh, not since I lived here, but it's not unprecedented. Um, but, uh, you know, it kind of, you know, statewide, every county, I believe, uh, was affected. And this is a pretty big state. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, I'm not going to get into the particulars of, you know, how many people lost power and how many people died. I want to get into more of the mechanics around why certain power generation units failed, um, why that is, why weren't people better prepared, because this is what typically happens, right? After an event like this, um, everybody comes out of the woodwork, everybody's an expert. And of course, uh, most people don't have a clue. You know, uh, I remember the old Jay Leno um, segments on The Tonight Show when he would go out and talk to the man on the street. It was called jaywalking. And we'd ask questions of the average person, such as, where does bread come from? The grocery store, they would answer. Uh, where does electricity come from? The plug in the wall. So I think one of the things it did was slap people in the face to show how precarious your existence really is in a modern society and why you shouldn't take it for granted and why you should prepare. I mean, I prepared um, sufficient food, water stores here, winterization took, was uh, done on piping systems. I did have an outside PVC pipe break because uh, I didn't place a windbreak over it. But uh, other than that, uh, got through it. And uh, so I just wanted to talk about that a little bit today. And uh, some other fascinating things that are happening in the commodity and resource markets. Before we get into this, uh, really appreciate the support, guys. You know, I, I do this because the channel keeps growing. People seem to appreciate the work that we're doing here. I'm just stunned at the, you know, the results we're getting. I mean, the forecast, the waiting, the patience, the, the forecast that we had around the, what we thought would be a commodity uh, resource uptick is now has the potential to turn into a super cycle. We've pretty much got a, so many tailwinds behind us now and things are really happening. Uh, the portfolio is performing very, very well. It's hitting on all, all cylinders. And, uh, you know, I'm still not ready to call it a super cycle. We did have the interview with uh, Peter Sainsbury from um, Materials Risk, very good website. Uh, I think you should check that out, check his website out, get on his email list. Um, and others are calling for the super cycle in commodities. I'm not sure if we're there yet. I don't know if this is just a reflationary impulse, but uh, some things are really happening. Uh, having said that, uh, I get a lot of emails and uh, DMs about, you know, the newsletter. You know, the newsletter is $150 per year. It comes out once a month. We have commentary in there. We have the stock picks. Uh, a lot of the picks have done tremendous. We've got several uh, triple digit winners. And I'm gonna be honest, you know, last year, this time last year, we were not doing well, it was in the dumps. Uh, 
because we were, you know, but this is what we look for that three to five year time frame, And then you just have to have the patience to see if things are going to turn around. If your forecast is correct, these things normally take a lot longer than you think. So anyways, uh, check that out if you're interested, but let's get into uh, this week's uh, discussion. So we had the big freeze this week. Uh, we had an almost failure of the Texas grid. And of course, uh, now it's being turned into a political football by self-interested parties on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, most of which most of these people have no clue what it takes to um, you know, produce power uh, on a reliable uh, scale that we do. I mean, it's quite an achievement if you think about it that your electrical grid is pretty much about 99.9% uh, is there. You go, you know, turn on a light switch, you have a pretty good expectation that's going to come on. That's not, it's not a third world country we live in. And that is because of the hundreds, if not trillions of dollars of investment that's happened over the many, many decades. The hardworking people, the great engineering, the great uh, machines that we have, uh, industrial base, it's just tremendous. And I don't take it for granted. I work in the industry. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, energy underpins everything that we do. So when we have something like this happen, uh, people are inconvenienced and, uh, or in some cases, uh, you know, have property damage, their pipes broke. Uh, I, I, you know, stories, people sitting, having to be in their house for two or three days, you know, it's 37 degrees inside the house with no heat. So um, it's not fun, but I think that, uh, you know, we were very close to a failure of the entire grid. Uh, we were in rolling blackouts. That's what you have to do when you have more demand than there is supply. You have to uh, shut down parts of the grid. You have to take some of that demand away. You have to make it go away. So what really happened here? Uh, it's not a failure necessarily of wind turbines or natural gas. Yes, these things did fail. They didn't uh, produce uh, but the generation that was expected, but why? Well, because the real issue is that we had an abnormally cold weather that the state's energy infrastructure is just not designed for. You know, um, this time of year, we have this big influx of people from Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Iowa, call them winter Texans. They come down here, they have little trailer parks and little uh, winter homes, communities that they go to, little golf courses, and they stay for the winter because they want to be away from the winter up north. They're retired people. And typically, you know, we have very mild winters. We may have one or two days where it gets into the 30s at night. Uh, that's a typical winter here since I've been here the last 12 years. And the last three years, we've had now two deep freezes. I've got all my tropical plants in my yard are dead uh, or freeze damage. We'll have to see how many of them actually died. But uh, I had that happen two years ago where a couple of the palm trees in my yard died. So um, this is, you know, not normal. And typically the infrastructure is built around normal, not, you know, 100 or 500 year events. That's not what we do. You know, uh, this is the same argument, you know, to, to, in order to make things usable, cheap and ubiquitous, you have to, you know, uh, build for what's the norm. You know, if you're up in Illinois or Minnesota or, you know, Ohio, Northern Ohio or in Western New York, you have these tremendous winters or in Canada, you know, typically they sail right through this because the infrastructure is designed and built for those typical conditions, which are extreme cold. Uh, these machines can be all natural gas, nuclear, coal, wind turbines can be designed and built 
such that they will operate in these very, very extreme low temperatures. That's not the case in Texas because we don't have those temperatures. And, uh, you know, so people don't weatherize, if you will. I do find it a bit surprising, though, because having worked in Texas in the power industry for many years, uh, we've had issues before in the past where we've had uh, events like in 2011, I can remember, and even before that, and ERCOT bumped up the regulations around uh, if you're running a plant, you have to submit a um, weather, winter weatherization plan on an annual basis before the winter. I think it's due by November 20th, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, but it's not like they issue what you need to do. You do this self assessment of what you're doing and you turn it in. So you're supposed to be able to have enough brains to say, well, this is how I've weatherized my plant such that uh, I'm not, I'm going to be able to contribute to the bulk electrical system and not cause outage or not be able in order to make my plant reliable. But when you get into these conditions that are like freak conditions, I mean, you, there's not much you can do about that for reasons that I'll go into. So this is interesting because I used to live in Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota. I used to work at a biomass plant in downtown St. Paul uh, that Duke Energy owned half of when I used to work for Duke Energy crossing the Excel Center. And right up the street from us was this plant. This is the Highbridge gas turbine plant. Uh, so what you have here, this is uh, the exhaust. Basically, you have what's inside here, this building. This is all enclosed. These are probably either day tanks for feed water or they may be fuel oil tanks for backup uh, fuel. Anyways, you've got a gas turbine. You got a what's called a Hersig here. So it's a metal box with boiler tubes in it. And on the front end, you have a gas turbine. So the gas turbine runs, makes electricity. The exhaust from the gas turbine is hundreds and hundreds of degrees. It flows across the uh, boiler tubes and creates steam, which can uh, be used to turn a steam turbine. And then you have your exhaust out, these exhaust uh, uh, stacks here to the left. So it looks like they have got two units there. Um, they probably, I don't know if they have a steam turbine there. If they have a steam turbine, it'd be called a combined cycle plant. It may be just a simple cycle, I don't know. But regardless, you'll, you'll note that it's in Minnesota and St. Paul. You know how cold it gets there. The building is built. It's built inside of a building. The, it was the same thing at the biomass plant. If you go to downtown St. Paul, the facade of the, of the building looks like just a storefront, but the plant drops down uh, by the river uh, there's cliffs there, it drops down, and you can't see the plant, but it's inside too. You've got uh, a biomass plant in there and some smaller coal units and gas-fired uh, boilers. And it supplies heating and hot water to downtown St. Paul. This plant, uh, you know, the reason why you have it inside is because it's not affected by the weather then, right? And like I said, these are probably either day tanks for feed water or they could be fuel oil tanks because these gas turbines inside can run off gas and in a pinch, if the gas was to not be able to be supplied, they have the ability to be co-fired with fuel oil uh, and a lot of times. But I don't know if that's the case. I'm just saying that is the case with many of these plants. I want to put this, uh, juxtapose this against here. This is a plant. This is the same thing. It's two units, gas turbine plant in uh, Edinburgh, Texas, which is about 25 miles from my house here in South Texas, you will note it's outside. It's the same type of unit. All this that you see on the right is in the inside of this building uh, in St. Paul. 
Why is that? Well, it just doesn't, you know, get snowy and below freezing down here. So it can be kept outside. So therefore the construction costs are quite a bit lower. The maintenance costs are lower. Why would you want to have a, this inside? You know, you're saying, well, it's a boiler and gas turbine. Well, you have instrumentation lines. You have uh, instruments that run off water legs for different uh, things, uh, valving. You don't want that stuff to freeze. Okay. But down in Texas, like on the right, it's not an issue most of the time. So I wanted to kind of show the difference. This makes a difference, right? Because you could build a building around this, but why would you? You know, when people are designing these things, uh, the company that owns this, I believe is Calpine, the plant on the right. This is an Excel plant on the left. I mean, um, if this is a, this is not a regulated plant, this is a um, merchant plant. So it's trying to sell into the, um, into the real-time market more than likely, unless it has a power purchase agreement. So it needs to keep its costs as low as possible. And part of the cost is the capital cost on the front end of the plant. So you're gonna do everything you can to keep the cost down. And if you don't have to put it inside of a building, why would you do that? So that's, you know, that's most of your plants here in Texas are outside like that. Well, just about everyone that I've seen is um, that are gas fired. Uh, coal units you know, are a little bit different. Uh, I haven't really been in any coal plants down here, but coal plants up north uh, are, are inside also. The coal piles are outside, but they know how to work the coal piles. So if they have freezing weather come, they can, uh, they can um, make that work. So wind turbines, you know, a lot of scorn was heaped on renewables. Obviously, solar doesn't contribute much when it's overcast or the solar panels are covered with snow and ice. That just goes without saying. That's common sense. But wind turbines, there's some, you know, a misnomer about this. Um, wind turbines did fail down here. And why? Okay, they're subject to the same, they are machines. They, uh, it's not just this little fan up there that you see the propellers, they have that box there called a nacelle. And inside you have a generator, you have a gearbox in there, you have all kinds of machinery, lubrication oil, chelating, uh, all kinds of things, coolant, uh, electronics. And, um, you know, if those aren't protected from the cold, that the, the machine will stop operating. Now, I got this from Power Magazine. Uh, there was an article in um, 2011. I mean, people seem to think like people in the power industry don't know what they're doing, but they do. They have machines, wind turbines that operate down here in Texas just fine. They don't have winterization packages on them. Ones in Alberta or Minnesota do. You have to pay extra for that. So uh, here's from the article. It says, during the February 2011 Southwest cold snap, so that was 10 years ago. We had, you know, this isn't the first time we've had cold weather or these polar vortexes hit the state. An unprecedented 16% of wind units within Texas's grid operator, or ERCOT, reportedly failed. That was uh, 709 megawatts due to blade icing and another 1,237 megawatts because frigid temperatures exceeded turbine limits. So that's something else you need to be aware of. You know, a wind turbine, the blades are an airfoil, like a wing. They are subject to icing. Um, you can uh, do different things to de-ice the, uh, the blades, uh, but that costs money also. Uh, now, they like to show the uh, picture of the helicopter spraying de-icing glycol or whatever they were doing on that turbine that's circulated on the internet. But most of these systems are passive, just like on the wing of an aircraft, and, but you have to pay extra and they have parasitic load. It's not energy free. 
So you can heat, uh, you can heat the uh, blade interior. You can heat the inside of the nacelle, the inside of the hub. You can do what's, uh, what the machine will accelerate and decelerate very quickly and shake the uh, ice off. And the machines do have sensors to determine if icing. So you can't have run, you know, the machine with uh, ice on it for several reasons. It can put the uh, bearings on the gearbox um, out, out of out of balance. You could cause damage. Uh, not only that, you could sling a chunk of ice. I've seen five, six hundred pound chunks of ice go flying, you know, hundreds of feet through the air with a wind turbine that's uh, shaking off ice. You can have ice fall off as it's melting and hit guys. I've seen ice come down so so much ice come off a blade and up in Illinois after an ice storm after as soon as the sun came out started melting it uh destroyed the stairs getting up to the turbine uh so yeah it could be a tremendous amount of ice and so um something else here it's uh, another blurb uh and although PGM that's the uh PGM interconnect that's on the east coast lauded wind power's positive impact on supply during the January 2014 polar vortex saying it contributed to PGM's ability to maintain reliability. Data shows that wind energy generation dropped precariously during demand peaks during the January 9th, 6th and 9th extreme weather event. You know, the problem is in many cases when the weather gets extremely cold, the wind goes down. So, you know, if you're going to have a, you have to have a balanced energy system and you have to have it built for the, you know, normal climate. So what happens is I think, you know, we have something like just happened last week, which is an extreme event and everybody comes out of the woodwork as an expert, you know, saying that, you know, somebody should do something, but you know, of course, nobody would want to pay to have all the plants be built in buildings and have all the wind turbines to have to be uh, winterization packages or winter pa operating packages, which raises the cost. You know, ultimately the company doesn't pay power companies don't pay for this. You pay as the consumer. So if you want everything to be robust like that, yeah, then you have to pay. So here we go. Wind turbines can be winterized. Uh, wind turbines are typically designed per international standards for turbine design to operate within ambient air temperatures of 14 degrees Fahrenheit while operational and negative four at standstill. Uh, turbines have an automatic shutdown feature to protect components if that range is exceeded. This would be in a turbine that is doesn't have a winterization package. Why? Well, like I said, you have uh, machinery up there. You have circulating fluids, lubricating fluids. The viscosity will change as the temperature goes down. And you wouldn't have proper lubrication. You would have other issues, okay? Uh, so uh, here we go. Here's the next blurb. Wind generators in places like Canada typically install cold weather packages to extend temperature ranges using up to 200 to 300 kW. See, that's the, that's the thing, that's called parasitic load. So nothing's free. If you want to have um, these things winterized and have a winter package, that's another reason why companies don't install them in places like Texas, because if the turbine's sitting idle and the temperature's down, then all the heaters come on and you're drawing power from the grid to have the turbine ready to run, uh, have it keep it warm and ready to run uh, when the wind does pick up. So. Uh, nothing's free in this life, except for the grace of God. Uh, components such as the nacelle space, yaw drive and pitch motors, and the gearbox, slip ring controller, and control cabinet. These are the things that would be heated. GE 
in 2010 introduced cold weather extreme packages for its 2.5 megawatt turbine, for example, which ensures operation and temperatures to negative 20 22 Fahrenheit in a survival mode to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So you also have a situation, like I mentioned earlier, where blades and instrumentation can also ice up, causing the turbine to fault. To clear many faults requires the tower to be visited by a turbine tech to clear the fault. So what happens in many cases is you have an ice storm, you're in a storm condition and during the night. Um, each turbine has uh, instrumentation on top of it that feeds information to the controller because each turbine can be runs independently, although it's part of a larger plant organism that goes to a central control. Uh, each, each turbine has its own uh, you know, pro programmable logic controller or computer that's taking in data from the weather station and other parameters from the turbine machinery sensors. If it, it has certain parameters it has to run in under uh, that have been determined by the uh, manufacturer and if it's exceeded, the machine will show many of these faults are faults that will not clear on their own. Like say the temperature drops a certain amount um, you know, depending on the term of manufacturer or how the, the programming set up, a certain fault may require a technician to visit the turbine, connect a handheld controller to the uh, machine's computer, and then clear the fault and then restart it. So you just wouldn't want these big machines just to be, you know, I don't think the processing power in the computers is sufficient, nor the instrumentation for many of the faults just to clear on their own. So if you're in the middle of the night or middle of an ice storm and, you know, 15 or 20 year machines go off because they're iced up and the instrumentation or something goes wrong, you're not going to send a technician out there until it's safe, just because it's unsafe to go out there in the middle of the night during a storm. So that's part of the problem too. So as I've said before, and people should know from common sense, anything can pretty much be done. It's just a matter of who pays and how much. That's always the question, right? So this storm, in my mind, was the equivalent of a Cat 5 hurricane hitting the entire state. You know, there's already finger pointing and placing of blame by media and politicians. That's what always happens. And of course, you have Bubis Americanus is howling that, of course, somebody needs to do something because I was inconvenienced. You know, nobody prepares. Uh, you can go to the grocery store right now down here in my town. All of them are cleaned out. Um, people don't prepare. They don't have supplies on hand. They don't have generators. They don't do anything. They just, you know see something on the news and then, you know, it's like a stimulus to an insect. Uh, they smell a certain pheromone and then act out a certain way. Um, it's incumbent upon people as being, you know, a sedent, uh, you know, should be aware individuals that you should be preparing for these things, okay? Um, does that mean everybody should have a generator? I don't know, some people can't afford it, but, you know, everybody should have some stores on hand to get them through if you have to be here for a week. I mean, that's just practical for hurricane seasons. People still don't do that. So you should have water or the ability to make your own water. Uh, if you have a well or something like that, uh, you should be able to have power to, you know, do certain things. You know, the electricity goes, goes out. They had boil water restrictions in many cities and counties because the pipes broke. But people didn't have ability to, um, boil their water because they have electric ranges. They don't have gas everywhere. Most places in Texas run off electric heating and electric cooking. So that stuff has to be thought through. So do you need to have a camp stove? Maybe. Do you need to, you know, be thinking about these things and, you know, spend a few hundred dollars, put the stuff in your, you know, utility room and say, this is, you know, break glass in case of emergency. 
I think that's prudent. I think that's one thing people that can do. I can't control or what ERCOT does. I can't control what the state does. I don't know what's going to happen, but what I can do is, you know, understand that I need to winterize, understand uh, how my piping system in my house works, uh, take the time to go out and winterize the outside piping. Uh, you know, we have backflow preventers that come out of the ground here. The water from the city comes out of the ground. There's a backflow preventer that goes back into the ground into your house. Well, you should, you know, I'm not saying you have to lag that like in a power plant, but you should, you know, you could wrap, you could wrap a blanket around that. You could put a plastic cover so when you, you don't get wind chill and freeze your pipes. We had people's pipes break like that when the city has to come out. Well, the city's not going to come out the next day because you want to take a shower. I mean, those guys, everybody's off until the event is over. So those are the things people should be thinking about and don't because they are expecting somebody else to save them or do something for them. That's a little bit of a rant maybe, but uh, that's just how I think about things. One thing I think that can be done and should be done and should be talked about, and hopefully it'll come out of this. Now it won't happen in a year or two. It'll take a tremendous amount of investment, but the ERCOT system is not, Texas is not hooked to other grids. There's some small connections, but not, most states are interconnected with other states. Uh, under a different, you know, you've got MISO uh, in the Midwest, you've got PGM in the East, you have this ERCOT system, you have SPP in the center of the country, and most of those are interconnected, these states. Texas is not. Why? Because they took the decision uh, to not connect, and that absolves Texas of having to fall under many of the right federal regulations that other states have to fall under. And so I think that I don't know for a fact in this case, but it could have been uh, probably profitable for many of the people here that if we were connected to other states, uh, we could have imported power. We would have more flexibility with our grid, let's put it that way. So I think something like that probably should be discussed. Um, whether it will be or not, I don't know. What typically happens is, you know, uh, a week or two or a month after something like this happens, uh, people just go back to their lives and doing whatever they were doing and they forget about it. So we'll see. Um, I suspect that uh, after the hand waving goes away, we'll probably just the status quo will maintain because people don't want to spend the money. It would be, be a tremendous investment at this point in amount of negotiations and cost and then just getting it ramped up to connect the grids to other states would probably, you know, be in the hundreds of billions of dollars at this point, at least tens of billions. I don't know. So enough said on that. Uh, I just wanted to talk about that because there's so much misinformation out there. The media doesn't really do any real journalism, you know, because there's always a bias. Everybody has these biases. If you're for, on the left and you're for the Green New Deal and for renewable energy, well, it's fossil fuels fault. If you're uh, a fossil plant operator or uh, have favorable opinions of the oil and gas industry, then it's the renewables plants faults. It's, you know, the bottom line is it's unprecedented. We don't have harsh winters here. That's why the plants are not protected. It's just that simple. It's journalism. So the question should be, what's the delta on the cost to winterize everything to prepare for these events? And is it worth it based on how often these events happen? That's the real question, but that won't get asked because everybody has a political bent and bias to this. Everything has been made political. So I suspect nothing will happen except a bunch of finger pointing and a bunch of people throwing turds back at each, each other back and forth. All right. This I found very interesting. You will note that oil has been rallying uh, very, very nicely. 
kind of as we thought would happen. Uh, demand is back in many countries like China and India, Brazil. It's climbing back in the U.S. Um, as economic activity recovers in many of these places, economic activity is increasing now. Uh, COVID infections are plunging. It's not being reported. And am I cynical? Yes. People well, why wouldn't it be reported? Why wouldn't they be jumping down? Because if, if, if you report the fact that infections and deaths are plummeting, then, you know, we, do we really need another stimulus program? They want to get the stimulus through this $1.9 trillion stimulus. So they, a lot of that's going to go to a lot of these blue and states and cities that are going to get bailed out. That's what a lot of it is. I mean, am I cynical? No, that's just how politics works. So if you are, you know, as soon as they get the thing through, then it's going to be how wonderful it is that uh, uh, that we got that through. And look, look at us, uh, the Biden administration. Look at how wonderful it is. Everything's happening just like we saw. Aren't we wonderful? Infections are going down. Deaths are going down. Vaccines, vaccinations are going up. Now I track the daily vaccinations. There's websites. I'm tracking all this. It's all out there, and no one talks about it. Again, there's no real journalism because there's always an agenda. There's a bias, okay? So you have to look at things for what they really are yourself because if you're relying on CNN or Fox News to tell you what's going on, you are going to be missing the boat. We didn't miss the boat. We knew oil demand would come back. And several of the stocks in the portfolio and other stocks that I hold are up hundreds of percent and they have a lot further to go. So here's Total from their recent presentation, earnings presentation. Total is the very large French oil and gas company. And what they said in their, this slide from their presentation was that without more massive investment in new oil and gas, we're gonna have basically a supply crunch in, you know, by 2025. Basically, we need to get ourselves another 10 million barrels of, um, new production, uh, and that's a lot of, that's hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of investment that needs to happen. I think another thing that really came out of this whole debacle here is the understanding that, you know, we're not prepared for, uh, uh, to make a energy transition in any time of time frame that a lot of people thought was gonna happen. It's gonna be decades that oil and gas and fossil fuels are gonna be around. And the necessary, as I've said, ad nauseum, the necessary investment has not been made. Not only that, we have stepped on the neck of the industry with this uh, ESG movement, with the demonization of the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to uh, lead to investment and banks wanting to take on the risk because everybody's worried about getting called out on Twitter. Evidently, Twitter is the determining factor the Twitter outrage mob will determine what we do. So that's unfortunate for most people, not for people that listen to this uh, videos, you know, these videos and subscribe to the newsletter and other people that, you know, actually look at reality for the way it is, not the way they necessarily want it to be. Um, necessary investments are not being made on an extractive industry that's required for civilization at this point in time in the world's history. Therefore, we are going to have a supply crunch. Uh, is it going to happen in the next year or two? No, but we're going to have elevated oil prices. And as the economies of the world continue to get turned back on, energy demand is going to come roaring back. It already is. That's without a doubt. Um, 
and this is where it's really at. Look at this last bullet point, resilient Asian demand. That is where the growth of the world, forget about the United States, forget about Europe. They're not relevant when it comes to energy anymore. The growth and what's the action is in these large populations in Asia. And nobody's even talking about Africa. I'm like the only one of the only people out there talking about that's going to be a, an area for tremendous amount of commodity and energy growth over the next several decades. We're talking about commodities, talking about a super cycle. Copper broke $4 a pound. We said this was going to happen. You know, uh, when I was talking to Peter Sainsbury, I remember bringing up the anecdote of Robert Friedland, who is a known uh, great mining entrepreneur that's brought many great mines online. And he's famous for making very uh, profound quips and statements. He was asked a couple of years ago where he thought the copper price would go based on this whole desire to electrify everything and the fact that insufficient investment had been made in new copper reserves and that head grades, grades were going down for the copper that, had, that we were mining because we have mined all the easy stuff. And he said that he thought that you would need a telescope to see how high the copper price would go in order to incentivize the requisite amount of copper that will be needed to do these things that people are talking about. So basically what you do is you have a chart here that shows previous um, copper bull markets, if you will, for different time frames. This is the one we're currently in now. Um, this, is, this is a month old because it shows the copper price at uh, $3.62. We're over $4 now, slightly over four, I believe. And the current market is up 57% in less than a year. And you can see the duration and how far the previous uh, bull markets have went. Some of them have went for two years. It looks like anywhere from 18 months to two years is the average length of the typical um, bull market in copper. Now we've had a couple where we've matched the, the, um, how far the move has been. Uh, we have 57%, so we're in that range. But we also have some outliers here, like during the, uh, this is the 2008-2011 China-induced bull market in commodities where copper went from under $1.50 to four fifty dollars a pound. And that was a 224% move in about two years, a little bit more than two years. I think that there's a pretty good possibility we're going to see four fifty exceeded before this is over with. Do I think it's straight up from here? No. Do I think there'll be some pullbacks? Probably, you know, and we're very conceivably, why couldn't we see this? This was the um, October 01 to 06 bull market that took the price of copper from, you know, about 60 cents to uh, $3.75. $3 so that was also, you know, that part of that decade long, you know, from 2000 to 2010 commodity bull market. Are we in that again? I think so. That's uh, a good possibility, but also we have tremendous amount of reflation. So we might just be in a reflationary impulse. I don't know yet, uh, but this is, I wanted to point this out to you because this is happening all across the commodity um, spectrum. I mean, I think cobalt's up 50% in the last month. Lumber's up over a hundred and something percent. Uh, all the grains are up. Everything is up and um, except for gold uh, uh, is, is suffering right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is what we were talking about. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a problem in six months when the U.S. turns itself back on economic activity in Europe. I mean, it's going to be something to see. Uh, we're going to have a couple quarters of tremendous growth. and You're going to see inflation really go nuts. 
these reported numbers just haven't hit. You know, as these annual comparisons come in from this move in oil prices, I've already saw, you know, I got a notice from FedEx uh, from one of my businesses where shipping rates, they're putting fuel charges on shipping rates already. So um, we're seeing this already starting to filter in and you'll see more of that if these prices stay up. Um, this is an older article from like a couple weeks ago. I, forget, I didn't have time to put it in. I wanted to throw it in there. I think it was apropos based on what we saw in Texas. The J Japanese saw something similar about a month ago. So it's not just, you know, here in the U.S. It's around the world where we have these cold spikes and they weren't prepared either. But the energy, their energy minister believes that the nuclear sector will be, quote, indispensable after winter of power outage shortages. Heavy snowfalls that brought Japan to the brink of power cuts last month underline the continued need for nuclear, said Hiroshi Kajiyama, who is responsible for energy in his role as Minister of Economy, Trade, and Industry. Achieving this will mean big, he's talking about achieving the zero um, carbon thing or whatever. Achieving this will mean big changes in a country where 88% of the energy supply comes from fossil fuels, almost all of them imported. So that's a problem in Japan, right? I mean, they don't have a natural base of coal, natural gas, or oil, so they import most of their fuel. So um, yes, the, in the article, they talk about renewables, but if you've been to Japan, and I lived in Japan for three years, it's not really conducive to wind and solar. First of all, there's not a lot of room. And number two, um, it's very mountainous and rocky, and there's not, it's, it's not spread out where you can just throw up thousand megawatt solar plants. Uh, plus, if I recall from my time in uh, Yakuska, uh, it got pretty cold in the winters there too. And I didn't really notice a lot of uh, potential for um, renewables there, but you know, that was 30 years ago. Japan's electric electricity supply was touch and go during heavy snowfalls last month. He said solar wasn't generating. Of course, solar will not generate if the solar panels are covered in snow and ice. That goes without saying. Wind wasn't generating. Electricity prices rocketed and parts of the country were close to power cuts. Quote, I'm trying to persuade everybody that in the new, that in the end, we need nuclear power. So I think that's going to be a conversation. One thing I'm encouraged about, uh, even in, during the Trump administration, was a uh, advocation for or advocates for nuclear power. And we're seeing that with the Biden administration, too. I think that... Uh, some common ground could be reached with the both parties around a nuclear renaissance here in the United States. Just think, uh, I've always called for this 20 and 10 or 30 and 10 or 10 and 10, where you build, you know, 20 or 30, make a commitment to build 20 or 30, you know, thousand megawatt plus nuclear reactors in the U.S. in the next 10 years. And you mandate that the, the federal government will get behind that with insurance and financing schemes and that there'll be certain mandates for the industry to uh, be sourced here in the U.S. So you'd be talking about high-paying STEM jobs, engineering jobs, long-term construction, high-paying construction, skilled construction jobs. Uh, you know, it takes three to five, year, five years to build a nuclear plant. Uh, you know, operations jobs after the fact for, you know, some of these plants now are rated for 100 years. So if you are serious about lowering carbon in the atmosphere, you have to be an advocate for nuclear power in my mind. And uh, I think we're starting to see that get seeped into more and more of the, uh, into the zeitgeist, if you will. 
one thing I wanted to point out, this was, um, I don't know if these pictures are old. Uh, this was allegedly on Twitter, but this happened during a hurricane too. I don't know if this was recent. This is, uh, this is the, um, the grocery store and you see like all of the meat sections cleared out. You see there the, the USDA Angus beef on the bottom is cleared out, but there's plenty of fake meat beyond meat available for your purchases. No one wants it. No one buys it. And then uh, this tweet that I saw on Twitter, if you look at the back of this thing, um, what's actually in this crap, uh, I would not eat this. Look at this. You have to be insane to eat this. Pea protein isolate is the major ingredient. Then you have expeller pressed canola oil, refined coconut oil, Maladex, I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, all kinds of vegetable oils, you know, starches. I mean, can this thing be good for you? Look, look at the, look at the, uh, you've got, you know, 300, you know, 2,400 milligrams of sodium in a freaking serving of this thing. I mean, I wouldn't touch this. I wouldn't feed this to uh, a, a, an abandoned dog on the street. So, and he would probably bite me for trying to uh, give it to him. So, you know, there's a lot of this agenda going around. In the end, economics, I think, wins out. Uh, one thing I do want to say on a closing note, you know, I interviewed Malcolm Rawlingson. A lot of people that have, follow, have been following uh, the uranium market for a long time will remember Malcolm. He was very famous on Twitter, and I interviewed him in the interview series number two. Uh, he was a guy that basically worked in the nuclear industry. Uh, in plants for 50 years, different positions, very schooled up on nuclear operations and knowing the industry. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he's, he's disappeared off Twitter. If anybody has a handle on him and can put me in touch with him, I'd, I'd appreciate that. I'd like to have him back on and get his uh, updated views on the industry. But uh, regardless, one of the things we talked about was, you know, what was going to change people's views towards getting out of this nonsense of this unicorn farts and, you know, wonderment that we were going to run the world off of solar panels, wind farms, and Al Gore's pizza and beer farts, uh, and focus on what is real, like, uh, you know, really building out and taking our nuclear industry seriously. And um, he said that it would be situations like we've encountered here, where people have to go through the pain and they have to feel it and see that, you know, fantasy land is a fantasy and that reality is reality. And I think now that uh, we're seeing that, you know, that's going to win out common sense in the end and economics in the end will win out. And I think this is a perfect example too. Uh, people just don't want this stuff. I mean, they don't want to eat this. Um, the governments can try to mandate things. We'll see if that works. Uh, I'm not sure if it will. It may remains to be seen. Uh, if Bubis is going to roll over and wet themselves and go along with this nonsense, I mean, they've got people, I said it during 9-11, you know, after the panic there, they created the TSA and everybody dutifully takes their shoes off and walks through the x-ray machine. Uh, and if you think that that's providing safety, I can think up a hundred ways to, you know, deal to, to, to circumvent that. Let's put it that way. Anybody could. So it's all theater, kabuki theater. And this is the same thing. You know, we have these billionaire class of people like Bill Gates and all these other people that uh, if you want to give them the credit of being idiot savants in their particular field and they made a billion dollars or billions of dollars, 
now all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they have egos or they're bored or they're malevolent. I don't know. I don't know these people, but uh, they seem to think that they're a master of the universe and that one skill set or being in the right place at the right time makes them an expert on everything else and that we should listen to them by virtue of the fact that they have 50 or $100 billion. And this is the kind of nonsense you get into. Unfortunately, these people uh, have voice in the halls of power. And I think that the only way you're going to upturn this, vote with your money. That's the only thing that these people understand. Cut the cord, get rid of cable. Don't buy this kind of crap, okay? Take the money away from them. Don't, you know, and people won't do it. They'll complain to me like you wouldn't believe. And then and they'll be like, oh, by the way, did you watch this new series on Netflix? Why are you watching Netflix? Why are you giving these people money? You know, why are you supporting sports ball if you, uh, you know, complain about people taking a knee and all this other stuff? People need to match their um, convictions with how they spend their money. That's the best way to vote. Yeah, you can go to the polls and vote, but believe me, taking, you know, if, if they want to demonize half the population and call them names and ignore them, then stop supporting uh, these corporate behemoths and they'll feel the pain. And they probably still won't change, but they'll go away and something new will emerge. There's all kinds of alternative media. There's an alternative comics coming out, alternative movies coming out now. And uh, that's where you should be putting your money with people that think like you, that share your values. You should not be giving money and patronizing people that don't, that hate you and uh, despise you. So that's, uh, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, appreciate the uh, support. And uh, if there's any questions or comments, leave them in the uh, section down below. You know how we do it. And uh, I'll try to answer them uh, as I can. Thanks again for uh, listening. And we'll talk to you next week.